Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Crazy Girls Ignite podcast. Um, this is your host, Marcy Ober, and I'm so happy that you have joined us today. Um, the Crazy Girl Project exists to bust mental health stigma and provide wellness education that is accessible and free of charge. Um, we believe that there is a menu of options for wellness and no one size fits all. So uh, the more we are educated, the more we're talking for real about all aspects of mental health and wellness, the more informed we can become and the more um, we can put our lives where we want them to be and help our loved ones to also uh, you know, create the lives that they uh, deserve. So um, I, along with Nikki C, um, our co-host, um, are so happy to have you join us today for a frank and open conversation about relapse. And in just a few moments, we will introduce today's guest, but um, I just wanna say hello and welcome Nikki. Hi, Nick. Hi, Mars, how are you? I'm pretty good. How are you doing today? You know, I'm hanging in there. <laughs> I'm having a day, but don't we all? So mm -hmm. um, I'm Nikki, founder of Ignite, and uh, we're here to help uh, those dealing with trauma, um, you know, with coping skills and uh, anyone that has been a survivor of abuse um, or grief help them through as well, because it's a tough road and it's challenging. And I'm just excited to talk about, about uh, relapse today because um, it's, it happens a lot in mental health. It's a very real subject. And mm -hmm. I think it's something that people don't really understand. And, you know, by us having these conversations, um, we're going to try and unpack some of the, uh, you know, challenges or, or, you know, bring light and understanding to this topic. Um, I've also been advised that I talk too fast and I throw too many concepts out. So I'm going to slow it down a little today. I'm going to try and explain things in non-clinical terms. And I hope you guys help me with this because, you know, I'm Marcy from Canarsie and I talk fast and uh, I, I, I don't want to you know, I want people to be able to really follow along. So uh, today I am so excited to welcome our special guest. Um, Stephen Donahue is a friend and a colleague and I have tremendous respect for Steve. Um, he's the founder of Core4, which is a professional and personal development organization that simplifies solutions. Um, I'm sorry, simplifies situations into actual solutions. So he will tell us about that. Uh, Stephen uh, attended um, NYIT in Fordham, um, and he got a degree in communications in his MSW. And uh, Steve is, is very knowledgeable and uh, has developed mental health and chemical dependency programs um, for the state of New Jersey, within the state of New Jersey. And so I'm really glad that, Steve, you're with us and we can talk with you today about relapse. So welcome, Steve. Thank you guys for having me. Greatly appreciate it. And thanks for the kind words, Marcy and Nikki. Thanks for being here. So um, can, can we start out with just, let's go here. And, and again, simple, um, what in plain language is relapse? And you know, does it apply only to chemical dependency and addiction or does it apply to the mental health world as well? Can you just educate us about this a little bit, please? Well, absolutely. Well, I think relapse alone 
is a word that is in the dictionary that has been kind of pirated by certain clinical settings, which then changes the, the, the word itself, you know? And I think that's the first ownership in the clinical world we have to take. If we took some words and we kind of weaponized them, relapse being one of the biggest. So a relapse in plain English is um, it's a moment when a person experiences, whether, con whether knowing it or not, an action or a feeling that they agreed not to do again. Mm -hmm. So just to make that a little bit even easier is if I say I won't call you in a butthead, but I do it, it's a relapse. Mm -hmm. I agreed with myself and you not to do it. Something evoked it from me. Okay, I did it. I relapsed. I apologize. Should not have said that. Or chemical dependency world, I won't do heroin anymore. I agreed to myself, my higher power, my family whom in my system, and then I did it. That's the relapse people I think might consciously come to first, but all across the board are relapse, truthfully. Hmm. Hmm. So what you're saying is that if we set an intention or make a commitment to something, and then we find ourselves not fulfilling that and going back to old behaviors, um, or attitudes or whatever it is that we have intended to not do, then that in fact is a relapse. Absolutely. Again, go back to the word. It's the word is rooted in lapse, rebeat, right? And then you take the word for the word, you know, really using the dictionary to guide us in the conversation of you have lapsed on something. You didn't do your assignment. You lapsed on it. Mm -hmm. Well, you did it again. You did not do it again. You relapsed. Hmm. Using the word in context actually makes it easy to describe and understand. Mm -hmm. It's the clinical aspect that makes it distorted and difficult for us to chew on and digest. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. So, so what do you think about, you know, for focusing on mental health, which, you know, that, that this podcast is all about mental health and wellness addiction is, is clearly, you know, a mental health issue, but it's sort of its own kind of word, you know, offshoot or world, but, you know, what do you think about relapse in, in addiction and mental health? What are your thoughts about that? The good old chicken or the egg, which is one of the, the biggest debates. I won't say arguments, because this is a clean show, but one of the biggest debates in the industry of my experience is, should they be mental health track or chemical dependency? Why are they separate? Should co-occurring exist or should it just be support period, right? This huge debate. And, you know, of course there's money maybe involved in some, some real clear definitions of how to support someone on a necessary track versus not. So I understand there's a reason for that argument, uh, that debate on the table, mm -hmm. but it in, inevitably a relapse is mental health first mm -hmm. before it's a chemical dependency. Mm -hmm. If one is, one is the pathology of an addiction starts with your mental health. Mm -hmm. So to say that a, a relapse is not mental health would be an egregious oversight mm -hmm. of what we know as is just facts. Mm -hmm. So it starts all relapses are mental health and all relapses, all relapses start mentally. Mm -hmm. You don't receive a physical, a physical sensation without your brain absorbing information and then putting it in there, whether consciously or not. Mm -hmm. And that's where the trauma would come into play where, oh, I think I've been here before. Well, I don't know what triggered it, but I feel something. This feels from, and then it starts to rabbit hole down and it's all mental. So mental relapse will always occur before a physical action having done it. Right. I don't care how often someone autopiloted 
took the wheel, whatever, it's mental first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, when I was researching this chapter for the book, which I call relapse is a part of recovery, which is a pretty standard term in, you know, the addictions world, but it is, you know, um, it, it's, it's, it's so normal that we think about it and we plan for it. And we, we, we work on things called relapse prevention, which we're going to talk about, you know, in, in a little bit, but um, I kind of broke it down. I'm, I'm looking at, at the chapter and, you know, I, I did some little kind of sidebars on what is an emotional relapse, mental relapse, physical relapse. And, and, and you're right. Like there's a thought process that, that almost always kind of comes before right? Like the itch, you know, starts kind of coming up or, uh, or, or we don't have the energy to fight, you know, um, in the case of depression or, you know, I, I know when Courtney was, uh, was going through some of her challenges, you know, her old coping skills, which were not healthy or functional were very, very comforting. And she would think about them and she'd kind of, you know, think about in her mind and fantasize about them. And that always kind of came before the physical relapse. And she'll say that. Is is that your experience too? I I would say I'm breaking down to something that just happened to me recently. So I was asked to go to the New York Giants game a couple of weeks ago, which anyone that sees the Giants is nothing to root for. So I had all these ideas, the people I was going to the game with people I've known for 20 years, bro, we're going to go through tables. We're going to get bought. It's like, and all these ideas were being thrown my way. And my functional brain was filtering it of like, I don't want to go through a table. I don't even want to get drunk. I don't even drink. Mm -hmm. I don't want to do it, but I still find myself wanting to go into this situation, Mm -hmm. wanting to be around these things but having this self-esteem and belief in my functionality to not relapse per se. So mm-hmm. anyone in that scenario with FOMO, you know, the fear of missing out and I, I'm strong to do this. I can be within this situation. I think that it happens a lot more than people think. And they don't think of it as a relapse. They think of it as um, just a choice. Oh, I'm making a choice to do it or not. Or relapse sometimes is a choice. It really, you you can't end up in Patterson. You just physically made decision after decision after decision after decision. It's a series of moments. Those series of moments of decisions, micro decisions, I call them, become one big decision, Mm -hmm. which is the relapse. Momentum carried you there. Mm -hmm. That's that relapse prevention that we'll get into. Mm -hmm. That's what maybe Courtney could be experiencing when she wants to feel a release, but knows that a release is not ideal, but this is what works, right? I need a guy's that I need a guy's night out. So I'm willing to go hang out with these jokers, but I bet on myself. And sometimes betting on ourselves puts us out, puts ourselves in very, very tough situations. Yeah. Nikki, you got any thoughts or? I do. I was, um, I was actually thinking about what you were talking about, like kind of that, those micro moments that lead up to that relapse. Um, I know that those micro moments um, actually occurred for me not too long ago where I was not taking care of myself and actively knowing that I was stepping over my own self-care to take care of others. And those little moments, each one at a time, led me right up into a not so happy place where my mental health relapse back a little bit 
So it, it makes sense that it's those little things all put together in one. Mm -hmm. that Absolutely. cause like a kaboom, you know? <laughs> right, right. So I, I have a, I invented an intervention. It's a, it was designed for family, uh, family dynamics mm -hmm. it's called the wall, which I'll speak to you guys offline about and whatnot. I'm not going to just throw it out here, but the concept of it is that you utilize what coping mechanisms you have to build walls off of fundamental things. So it'd be faith. What bricks are in place to support your faith? And the higher the wall, the thicker the wall, the harder it is to relapse. So mm -hmm. there's a, a term I believe that I, I don't know if I invented it, but I love it. It's called the, the gravity of addiction, right? Now that goes for mental health and, and chemical dependency where there's a thought makes you look at the wall, the urge, you get to the top, that urge will carry you. And it's the gravity. If you take that step over that wall, that gravity, the addiction will bring you down. Mm -hmm. You're referring to me punching out brick by brick one at a time to the foundation eventually will come down and then the relapse will occur. Correct. Yes. You were, yeah. that's a hundred percent. The wall uh, intervention that I designed was designed to kind of combat and also identify, man, my wall starting to feel real thin. I got to mm -hmm. do some inventory. I got to call Nikki. I had to call Marcy. I got to get my, I got to use what walls left. And that's where that comes from. That whole modality that I invented was to identify those moments before they become a momentum. Wow. Good work, Steve. Good work. Yeah. Definitely have to talk about that more because <laughs> I want to want to learn how to strengthen the wall, you know, even stronger, you know, because you think that you have this very, very strong wall. There's always something that can kind of poke through it. So, uh, yeah, we'll talk about it. Definitely. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. I'd love to. Mm -hmm. You know, it's really interesting because I think that, um, you know, there are, there are definitely warning signs that if we pay attention, we can identify before, you know, an, an issue becomes, you know, an episode becomes a crisis becomes, you know, a, a full blown, like, oh my God, I did it again. And here I am back in this place. And how did that even happen? Um, so like, what, what are your thoughts about like warning signs and how we can identify, you know, if, if, we're, if things are starting to get a little wonky in our world. So this is always difficult. And I say this because I'm going to say something left and say, then say something right. And they're both correct. Someone who's disconnecting is a warning sign. Mm -hmm. Somebody who's up your ass is a warning sign. Mm. Someone's sucking up to you may subconsciously be, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And it's a manipulation tactic, whether they know it or not. Mm -hmm. You're really not up my butt all very often. And now you can't get off of me. What happened? What's wrong? Good example. I have a 15 year old son, loves me to death. I know he does, but he doesn't often just come in the room when I'm working to see how my day is. So I say, give me a moment. Yes. How may I serve you? Oh, uh, well, I want to play basketball. Like, oh, you want to ride. Okay, cool. Same thing. So if I'm starting to do something wrong, I feel like I have to cover my tracks or I need to be a little bit more loving or I already, I perceive myself to be disconnecting. So I need to now overconnect. And it's this tug of war. So those are just two examples. Um, other examples could be hygiene, looking at people's, uh, their work, uh, are they getting to work? Are they a little bit more flustered? Are they um, able to verbalize more? 
of what's going on with them. Are they verbalizing less? Are they missing appointments? Or is dinner changed? You know, or is dinner overcooked, undercooked? Just abrupt pattern changes or is the very overt things. But it's the covert things that people really won't pick up on that much, which that could be someone who's more measured. That's one I'd like to talk about a lot with people is this person is not a generally a measured person, but where they're very measured now, they're doing math before they talk to you. If they're doing math before they talk to you, they don't trust you or they really don't trust themselves. Mm -hmm. so focus on what the math is. So those are the biggest ones that I think as an overt is pattern changes. Covert is those tactics about what are they not doing that they would do? Mm -hmm. What is the measurement for? Yeah. Those are things that matter. So this is when you're looking at somebody, you know, you've got a husband, a child, uh, a person in your life, and you're seeing, you know, some, some behavior changes or some attitude changes or, or how they're relating to you. Um, how about with ourselves? Like, can we start to be aware of, of changes with our own patterns, um, you know, and, and identify them as potential warning signs that things are Go like if somebody, you know what, for myself, if I'm getting like irritable um, and I'm just like, you know, getting edgy, um, my stress level is probably high. If my stress level is high and I'm not actively taking care of my stress level, um, I think I'm at greater risk at, of, of relapsing in whatever way it is, whether, you know, I'm, I'm not on my eating plan or, you know, I'm 25 years off smoking cigarettes, but like those first years, wow. If I was out having drinks, if I was having a great time, boy, I wanted a cigarette. If I was having a fight, if I was having a bad day, boy, I wanted a cigarette. Like it was so ingrained as my go-to thing. And here I am 25 years off it. I don't think about it anymore. I think my identity has changed, but I think for probably at least five years, you know, becoming a non-smoker, uh, I was, I was at risk for relapse all the time. And I knew if I just had one cigarette, guess what? I was going to be right back to it. And I was going to have to go through everything that I went through to quit smoking again, which was horrible. And I didn't want to go through it, but that was probably 15 years of trying to quit before I actually did. So I don't mean to go off on a tangent, but I just think, you know, sometimes it's easier to see in other people and harder to see in ourselves. Well, we, we know everything, don't we? <laughs> you know, and, uh, so, if, you know, I want to get too clinical, but if you, you look at like Maslow's, the hierarchy of needs, right? You have the first, there's five, three are survival, two are thrive, and the, I, you can't get to thrive without survive. The same way that you would smoke a cigarette or wanted to, you smoked a cigarette the, because you wanted to thrive at one point. You believed it was something that'd make you thrive. You'd be socially accepted. You would look cool. You definitely wouldn't smell good, but who knew? Whatever the case was. Their survival piece was now the addiction telling you, I need you, I need you, I need That's you, I need right. you, I need yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. And then when you smoked, like, I could thrive now. I have now eclipsed level three of Maslow's higher. <laughs> <laughs> but we know that's all bullshit, right? It's all, a lot of it is us attached to these things. You know, if I could smoke cigarettes and I wouldn't smell and I would never die of cancer, I'd smoke on screen with you right now. Mm. But I just can't. Because mm -hmm. those are the facts. And those are the types of facts that can tell us, I know it's bad. I know I want it. Why am I ignoring? Well, you know, I have this cognitive, dis I have this belief now that it won't kill me today. We start to, when you start doing math for yourself, that's your warning sign. Yeah. When I start to make it okay, justifying things, rationalizing things, yeah. putting more emphasis on anything but a no, 
making room, wake, making room, making little places of space for old behaviors to start to feel acceptable or like, yeah, this is going to be good. I should do this. Absolutely. You're like water. And I, and I love to tell people this addiction is not the only thing like this. It's everything you want in life is like water. You will find a way to let it get to the path of least resistance. Then it's like, Oh, look, that car I've always wanted. I can't afford is just a thousand dollars less today. I must get it. Okay. Same thing for the shoes, the drink, the, the weed, whatever, whatever you need it to be, you'll make it. Okay. Because what you want will be like water. It will find its way through. But just because you can doesn't mean you should. Yeah. That's when you start to ignore that, you are in inevitable relapse. And if you look at your stages of change model or, you know, you're looking at that pre-contemplation, contemplation, preparation, you start looking at your stages. You're like, dude, I've been in preparation phase for three months. Right. I'm preparing. I didn't realize it. Right. You know, and getting into, and relapse is, that inevitable sixth stage, you know, you don't want to get to after maintenance, but most do only 5% of alcoholics actually abstain for life. So when you look at the numbers, you're going to relapse. What is the totality of that action and how transparent will you be about it? Well, that's a point. Let's go there because I think this is really important. If relapse is 95% of people that are in whatever recovery they're in, Okay, trying to change behaviors, change mindsets, change relationships, you know, deal with mental health. Um, if 95% are going to experience a relapse, you know, what can we do to make it the least impactful? How do we deal with it when it happens? How can we, um, you know, prevent um, an episode from turning into a crisis? And Nikki, I want, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this too. You know, what do you guys think? I am a gentleman, at least on camera. <laughs> so Nikki, no, please. No, go ahead, Steve. Go ahead. I want to hear what you have to say. Okay. And then and then I'll spin okay. off of what you have to say because I mean I'm I I am a recovering addict, or I don't really identify like that, but that's a whole nother story. Um, but uh, yeah, I relapsed a lot in my younger years. So I know what that's like. I'm also um, you know, I've relapsed a lot in back into an abusive relationship for years prior. So there was a lot of re relapse is a big part of my life, but I think that each time that I've relapsed, it actually gave me another step forward to learn more, to build, I guess what you were explaining, another like brick or block in that wall. So, but go ahead. I'll, I'll take the bait as I love this conversation. <laughs> so I think again, it goes back to operational definitions. How are you going to define an episode and how do you define a crisis to yourself? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because no matter what I say, you can disagree with me, but I look at what's the dictionary telling you mm -hmm. start there mm -hmm. you know? and an episode, a crisis is an episode. It's that you just perceived it as a survival situation. Whereas an episode is not for survival off the, you know, when you that look at use the hell out of me, could you, what, I don't get that, please. So an episode, I lost my keys. Is it a crisis if I was supposed to be at a job interview and I was never, you know, you look at the, what is the weight behind that episode? Yeah. Is it a crisis. Yeah. yeah. Crisis is where my survival is at risk and I must fight or flight. Yes. An episode is not. And if every episode is a crisis, 
well, then we have in fun a, a, a functional issue. Yeah, yeah. So that's how I would define it. An episode is an experience where a crisis is an experience with survival attached to it. Wow. And, and you know what? Yeah. yeah. And for some people, <laughs> it is. Because if they're having, if somebody's having an episode and it persists and they wind up in, in you know, a psych unit, well, mm -hmm. that has become a crisis for them. Maybe they will get stabilized. Um, maybe they won't survive it. Maybe their family is, is you know, suffering tremendously. So I think that, I think part of it is, 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 is being willing to accept an episode for what it is and try to deal with it as effectively as possible and try to keep it from turning into a crisis. Because I think the, the, the greater the crisis value of a situation, the greater the stakes for, for bad things happening, you know, exist. And, and guess what? Bad things happen with behaviors that we're trying to swear off or changes that we're trying to make. We're changing these things for good reason. So Absolutely. I, I have a, a template that I teach people. It's called win. It's uh, the, the what is the situation. So when you look at it is who's involved, why, why am I in this situation and what is the actual situation? So that's the W I what's my investment, right? Do I really care? Mm -hmm. Have I spent 20 years in this marriage? Is it my second date? What's the investment? Mm -hmm. And then the third is what do I need to get out of this? What's my minimum? What's my boundary, right? If you know what the situation is, what your investment is, and what you need to see happen, well, then you can discern between an episode and a crisis. You can start to do the math quickly of, okay, I'm not seasoned in this experience. So of course it feels like a crisis. Talk to someone who's never had a panic attack, they're gonna die. Talk to someone yeah. used to them. They're like, hold on, give me five minutes. Marcy told me, breathe through the straw, breathe. Oh, okay. Now I'm not in a crisis because I'm seasoned. So I think that there is a distortion between episode and crisis because it depends on the veteran in that situation. Mm -hmm. So crisis is in the eyes of the beholder. Your, I think your panic attack uh, analogy is perfect because it, it can certainly feel like a crisis. And, uh, and, and for families that are watching loved ones, go through relapse, that can feel like a crisis too. And uh, again, bad things do happen. So we want to minimize the episode. We want to get back on track as, as quickly as possible, which I think brings us to relapse prevention. So let's talk about that a little bit, because if we understand that it's part of recovery, that it's likely to occur and we can plan for this, you know, maybe we can have less relapse or maybe the, the, effect of the relapse can be less uh, devastating to those involved. Absolutely. The problem, in my opinion, with relapse prevention is you don't know why they were doing it in the first place. The reason you relapse will, will continuously change. Oh, my mother-in-law was late for the kid. I'm going to roll up before I got to go. Or, uh, man, Marcy, you asked me a tough one. I'm going to go smoke. Or, hey, she mentioned cigarettes. Whatever. We are so good at convincing ourselves that it's the right thing to do. We're so good at lying to ourselves and then feeling bad about it later. So the way to prevent it is by doing the work inside the room before you need to do the work there. It's really elementary. Mm -hmm. What are you doing here? I do drugs. No. What about you that is over that way or under this way is making you look to raise or lower that feeling? 
because that's the idea of addiction, right? Mm-hmm. I do like what I lo- I like what I have and I want to increase it, or I don't like what I feel and I want to decrease it. Mm-hmm. That love for the improvement or that minim- and the minimizing is what we need to do to sustain. So that's where addiction will start to lay out. Mm-hmm. It needs a it needs a path. So to prevent it, you need to know what the root is. Mm. I get insecure when I'm in new rooms. So I actively try to have a person that I'm safe with in new rooms. If I am going to a situation where I won't have that new person, relapse, relapse prevention immediately. I have Marcy on call. I got Nikki on call. I got Steve on call. I will talk to Steve before I go in. I'll call Marcy at one point when I'm there and I will call Nikki when I leave, whatever it is. It's about laying out mm. your weaknesses so you can then put strengths on top of them. Mm. That is prevention. It's a very proactive approach. Wow. What do you think, Nick? I completely agree. I mean, it's everything that I've been taught ever since, you know, um, I went into recovery and um, a little bit of what I've learned along the way. So yeah, no, I agree with Steve completely. You need a plan. If you don't have a plan, you're just kind of like out in the woods there. Like you need a plan. And you need to own that, you know, I have this here. I'm going to give you an example. Seasonal affective disorder, which is seasonal depression, okay, or seasonal anxiety. It's it's usually thought of with depression, but I see it with anxiety too. So let's just take depression as 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 a thing. So we know when daylight savings time hits um, in the in the northeast that, you know, it's going to start getting dark at four o'clock and it's, it's, so guess what? Maybe you start your light box two weeks before daylight savings time comes, because you know that every winter, maybe you're going to be fighting this. So you take the knowledge of what you've been through and you, you put it into some kind of proactive action plan. You know, um, I'm doing Weight Watchers right now. I know this is like, kind of stupid can compare to, you know, many other things. But if I know that, like, you know, when I'm playing Mahjong, and there's all this great food, I'm going to eat and drink. And that's the thing I do. But I don't want to not go to Mahjong, I have to have a plan, you know, and 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 how well am I going to be able to, you know, use this plan depends on a lot of different things. I think the more I own it, maybe the more I put support in place in advance, probably the more successful I'm going to be, you know, going into that experience. Well, yeah, we teach that. We Oh, sorry, Steve, go No, please, Nikki, I'll walk after you. We teach that in, or we, you know, we coach our, our clients that way, you know, like, um, what's the plan before the holidays so that you don't eat yourself into oblivion, you know, like, Mm -hmm. so no, Marcy, that's a great connection here because you can relapse in food just as well you could relapse in um eating disorders you can relapse in and i think i've relapsed in each and every one of these areas so i mean it is it's part of the process you can't you can't have one without the other and yeah having a plan once you know that these are things that do set you off when you know where your weaknesses are you counteract them with something you know a plan you need a plan so well, don't they teach anyone in recovery that you need to replace the vice with something else because it leaves a hole? Yeah. Well, it's interesting because if sugar is addictive, highly addictive, caffeine yeah. is highly addictive, we often will replace with food. 
shopping, mm -hmm. gambling. Mm -hmm. We go vice to vice because we follow bad advice. Mm -hmm. It's the, the the focus should not be to remove the the, the cool term now, right? Harm reduction. Mm -hmm. That's the word we use to get away with a lot of bad advice. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that harm reduction is always wrong. What I'm saying is it is not fully complete. And by the time of your 16 week IOP, you do not grasp In the concept. Intensive outpatient program for those who might not know what I that apologize. is. And no, yes. no, it's no, I do that all the time. Right. Yeah, but, sorry. Right? Uh, so nope. You have IOPs and OPs, which is an OP is an outpatient and IOP is intensive outpatient and IOP is uh Generally, you'll run a 16-week program, three days a week, three to four tops. And an outpatient can be seen between twice a week to once a week, between eight and 16 weeks, depends on your program. So generally, somebody who got a DUI doesn't have a drinking problem, which I think is still what, F11.20 is the code. And yeah, from the, from, the DC, from the DSM, it's been a while since so I punched those in. And so someone who had an experience with alcohol should not be in an, in an intensive outpatient. And if they end up in one, they were not telling everyone the truth or they were given a bad admission. Hmm. And that is what we would call in the industry sandbagging, where you bring in people to a program just to hold your numbers. Okay, so but we're not going into that today. That's different. That's a different thing. What I was to say is you want to be an advocate for yourself and be honest about what if you're experiencing trouble with these substances to be listen, I don't drink this often, but I binge. Really, what is binging? And that's where the vice of food spending and trying to recover comes in. Mm -hmm. We will binge in other ways to make up. So you really want to be cognizant of your events when you're binging or when you do use. You talked right. about going Well, it's being mindful, isn't it, in a way? Like, I remember when I quit smoking, I really didn't want to just replace it with food. And I didn't want to just like, um, I wanted it to be like a second order change, which is like a deep and lasting change instead of some kind of superficial change. So I took up running. And, you know, I really took a look at, you know, how I was going to deal with emotions. And I, I, I went for a fundamental change and not just a superficial change. And, you know, to your point, Nikki, that you learn from relapse and that you, that, that relapse can actually um, wind up teaching us more than, than we ever knew beforehand. It's being open and open-minded and trying not to go into shame and cover it up you know, and, and, and it's really just saying, here's where I'm at and here's what I'm going through. And what do I need to do to really get myself to a better place and not just play games with my own mind and switch from one thing to another, or, you know, let it go on a really long time because the longer, you know, we are in an episode, the actually the, uh, the greater the likelihood that it will at some point turn into a crisis. So I think education is key. I think being honest, um, and here's the last question, Steve. And um, what are some suggestions or advice that you would have for loved ones that are trying to help a family member or you know um, somebody that they really care about going through some kind of mental health or substance abuse issue? What can they do to to help them um, if they suspect a relapse might be happening or if a relapse has already happened? The very first thing you need to do, in my opinion, is you need to know all the facts. That's of mass importance. Talk to the treatment team. 
let them know what's going on. Um, and you need to set boundaries. That is crucial. Mm-hmm. What do you mean Somebody, by that? That's a word I, what I mean around by the law. We're going to do a whole show on boundaries, okay? But just for today's purposes, what does that mean when it when it relates to relapse? I'll put it in one sentence. Don't touch me is a boundary. That would obviously be a very physical boundary, but it's also very emotional because of what does that touch represent, right? Mm-hmm. So if I say, don't touch that drink in my house, you are in recovery. If you choose to do that outside of this house, I do not have a say. In this house, you will not. In my home, I set boundaries with people who I know the facts and represent a piece of myself. You will not touch that beer. I don't care if it's five years old. It's not for you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's a boundary. And that in the family is important. It's not about, oh, we'll never buy alcohol again. Well, mm-hmm. then you're submitting to control of other people. What it is, what's the boundary? If they don't respect your boundary, you need to come up with an exit plan. Mm-hmm. So that's protecting yourself as a family member. How about helping your loved one, you know, if they're in relapse, you know, come out of relapse? Is it, you know, I really, is it, is it being straight up? I, I see, well, I'll give you an example. When Courtney was cutting, you know, um, I hit a, a wall. I, I, I hit a point where I said, if you're going to keep doing this, you're not going to be able to live here because I can't, I can't, I can't support this and I can't have this. So we'll talk about what else, but I can't, there, there was my boundary, but there was also a lot of support in that. She was seeing her therapist, you know, I mean, whatever she needed to be able to help herself not do that. But yeah, I don't know if I'm going in a circle with this. No, you're not. I think what it is, is a family member, as a parent, you immediately forego the whole CPR on me first. You ready, you always want to love on your kid, right? It, you, and I, I understand that. But there comes a point where you, your kid is not just your child. They're, are, they're a dysfunctional adult. And you need to look at it as, what am I not doing to support you? And if they don't know what the answer is, then we are going to just start throwing things at the wall. Okay, well, then we're going to start doing, we'll do drug tests in the house. You can spend more of your day with me. Uh, we can, you can go to more meetings. I can go to more meetings with you. We'll find you a, a, a peer support person. There has to be systems in place, but it cannot be dependent on the family to do it or they will be burnt out and become resentful. Mm-hmm. Nikki's smiling, shaking her head like you're. Yeah, well, this is actually uh, a little bit of what, so, you know, come on into my house a little bit. But um, my oldest, my 13 year old, he's um, he's retracting into a little bit of, uh, I don't even know what to call it at this point, but is refusing therapy, refusing medication, refusing anything that could possibly help him. So I took, I guess I took my mask off trying to give it to him. I didn't put mine on before I put his on. And uh, yeah, he, he kind of took me down with him. He burnt me out. Mm-hmm. So I forgot that. So hearing that like, Hey, you got to take care of yourself first. You have to have the boundary. Like that's not going to happen in my house, you know, like mm-hmm. stuff like that. But a thir- yeah, that's why I was smiling. <laughs> a, 13, a 13 year old boy. They're rough. Well, <laughs> I, you know what's rough? Being a teenager. That's mm-hmm. rough. Yeah. When you combat teenage issues, mm-hmm. development, the unknown, the comparison culture of yep. 
is, is my penis the right size? Am I growing enough? Is my hair, do I look like people? Can I associate with people like me? Do I simulate, you know, you add all these questions, then add feeling different, feeling pain. See, seeing you, seeing your experience put pain into your mother's eyes is not something that they ignore. You know, I very, I do not believe Nikki that you have Michael Myers in your no, no, I know but that he, you can see him just shoving it all, you know, right inside. He's, and as a 13 year old, we lack in men, full disclosure, we suck for a long time because we don't know right from wrong. We just don't. It's not there complete. And society and the culture that we're raised in, you can't have these feelings. You can't have these things. So you have a young man there who's mm -hmm. learning how to be manly, whatever that means and combat some sort of vulnerability. Mm -hmm. so I think asking as many questions as possible, and if you ask 10 and get one answer, hey, that's a win. I'll take 10% today. Maybe tomorrow we get 30. Mm -hmm. Whether you have to do date times with that boy, five minutes, and you get to just talk about you, and so he can feel like he's part of the team and not being governed by the team. Yeah. I, I don't know the dynamic, but I just know at 13 years old, I was so angry. And I didn't yeah. know if I belonged. Yeah, well, that's what we have in here. <laughs> we have a very angry uh, boy that doesn't, you know, that's uh, withdrawn and closed off, which it's a teenager. I was the same way when I was a teenager. I where was, was, very, I was even more angry than that. So where would you say he's not closed off? Was there an area in his life? He's like, I love being in this world. The video games. What, 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 what video game? Uh, it's, uh, oh, I don't know what it's called exactly. It's that uh, he's actually like a police officer in the game. So there's like good guys and bad guys. And then you move mm -hmm. up rank depending on the video game and how well you're trained in the video game. It's like an LEO game. I would, and so, I would personally suggest to inquire about the game, study the game. What's the average age of that game? Who studies it? Um, who made it? What other mm -hmm. games have they made? Can you play it? Is there a power thing? He likes the control because he doesn't have control elsewhere. Video games are an escape to something we think is better. It's yeah. no different than a, than a drink. Mm -hmm. I want to yeah, no, we And him and his, uh, me and his father have actually been talking about that, whether or not there needs to be some sort of um, intervention on this video gaming. Well, because video it is essentially what it is. Two years, one, two, three, three years ago, the World Health Organization did come out and say that video game addiction was real and it was growing. Yeah, mm -hmm. but they also fundamentally completely blew away all idea about addiction as a whole and didn't do it. They didn't land it well, in my opinion. What I'm suggesting to you and your family is you rally around the video game instead of opposing it. What okay. about it is so good? Don't mm -hmm. we drinking's poison, but not to me. Yeah. So, yeah. so what yeah. about it? Does it do for me that the outside world can't do? Maybe he doesn't like the outside world. And if that's the case, we got to rally around this little dude. We got to love on him and get him back into the world that he wants to be in and one that he, that we want him in. He yeah. has to feel loved in both, both worlds. Okay. And with that said. Sorry, we went off. <laughs> no, it's okay. That's what we do here. We have honest talk and we, you know, we go to a lot of different places. You know, Steve, I really appreciate you being with us. I appreciate your knowledge and your humanity and oh. you're just a really good man and uh i think we're, we're just so lucky to have you here um how can people get in touch with you if if they want to reach out are you okay with that you don't have absolutely to? absolutely okay. i talk to anyone for just reach out to me you know um you can go to consultcore4.com 
or you can email me directly, Stephen at consultcore4.com. So um, please reach out, ask questions. Um, I'm not hard to find. I'm, all, I'm not hiding. I'm not big on social media because I have my own beef with that. But I think that if you need to get a hold of me, Google it. Get a hold of me. I don't care how you find me. C-O-R-E-F-O-U-R. Yeah, hope you head out of the way. <laughs> that. Thank you, my friend. I appreciate you. you being here. Maybe thank you, Steve. You are very helpful. We'll have we'll have some more conversations. How's that? Anytime. As long as we're helping people, we're helping each other. So absolutely. All right. Well, thank you, my friend. I'll talk thank to you guys. later. All right. Bye. Have a good one. Bye, everybody. Bye. So, Nikki, that was pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, now everybody knows that I, I'm, I'm holding on to a child with a, a gaming addiction at the moment, but, um, you know, it's, it is what it is. Are we not all dealing with our own little things? So, <laughs> oh, um, so Steve, I cannot remove you from this. You're going to have to leave the meeting. If I remove you, you can't come back. Okay. All right. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <sighs> you know, we're here to talk and we're here to talk real. And, uh, you know, we all, we all go through stuff in our own homes, don't we? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the effect of each of those things is, you know, is, is tough on a, anyone around them. You know, your loved ones get hit like crazy. I'm sure my parents went through a whole bunch with me. I'm sure my mom was feeling a whole lot from all of my relapses, all of my, you know, all of my stuff. So, Yeah. Yeah. But you know what? And, and this will be maybe one of the last things that I say today. I think that for those of us that struggle and go through pain and painful experiences, we become some of the most compassionate and um, helpful people that there are. I think mm -hmm. it just goes with the territory. So we, we have to hang in there and we have to help ourselves as much as possible and our loved ones and our friends and um, and, and realize that there's purpose in the struggle and, um, and that to never, never, never give up. Yep. That is right. Mm -hmm. Anything you want to add? Uh, not at the moment. I think that, uh, I think Steve did a great job of covering everything on relapse. And I think you, I think you said, said it best. All right. So let's keep it there. Keep it there. Well, thank you, my friend. I love having these conversations with you. And if people would like to get in touch with you, Nikki, how can they reach you? Uh, Facebook uh, and Insta at IgniteOwnIt uh, or IgniteOwnIt.com. Mm -hmm. And you, Mars? Same, Facebook and Insta, The Crazy Girl Project and uh, or CrazyGirlProject.com. So until next time, everybody, uh, take care of your mental health, take care of each other, um, build some bricks of protection around yourself. And if you're, you know, in a time zone change and, you know, the dark is, is getting to you, the holidays are coming, um, make sure that you stay connected, make sure that you don't go it alone. Okay. So until next time, everybody, thank you so much for listening. And, uh, we will talk with you in our next episode. Mwah. Bye, Bye guys.